Welcome back to the second episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we have a special weekend edition. Maybe a little bit longer because there is a lot going on that needs to be talked about. We'll be talking about stocks, the market, a little bit of politics, and of course, we'll close with our daily delight, just to make sure you leave in a positive mood. But that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into the stories. First one comes from CBS News. Stocks crumble after Fed dashes investors' hopes for pulling back on interest rate hikes. Stocks tumbled on Friday after the head of the Federal Reserve dashed Wall Street's hopes that it may soon let off the brakes for the economy. The S&P 500 dropped 141 points, or 3.4%, to close at 4,058, the biggest drop in two months, after Fed Chair Jeremy Powell said that the Fed will likely need to keep interest rates high enough to slow the economy, quote, for some time, in order to beat back inflation that is sweeping the country. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 1,008 points, or 3%, while the tech-heavy NASDAQ retreated 3.9. Investors initially struggled to make out the means of Powell's highly anticipated speech. Stocks fell at first, then erased nearly all their losses, then turned decisively lower, with all but six of the companies in the S&P 500 turning red. Quote, stocks were sold off aggressively throughout the entire session, not once mounting a meaningful rebound that lasted for more than 20 minutes, end quote. Noted Vital Knowledge founder Adam Cristofoli in a Friday research note, quote, the Powell address received most of the blame, and while the timing of his remarks certainly coincided with the equity puke, it's hard to blame the Fed for what happened, given the U.S. tightening expectations barely budged, end quote. Powell's speech followed up on several other Fed officials who have recently pushed back on speculation that the Fed may ease up on interest rate hikes. The increase helps, these increases help corral inflation, but they also hurt the economy and investment prices. I I don't know where this this idea that they would ease up on raising the interest rates in order to uh, help stop the inflationary spiral that we're in. I don't I don't understand where anybody could get that idea. Right now we are at one of the highest inflation rates in the last twenty five years. I think we're headed somewhere near 6% inflation. That is insane. And one of the main ways that the Fed can address this is by raising interest rates to make sure that people cannot spend as much money. They are not willing to spend as much money, which slowly takes that extra money out of the economy. So... I don't get where this conception that, oh, well, maybe they won't raise the interest rates anymore. They really have to slam on the brakes here. So I think this was something that was not easy to see coming, but it makes a lot of sense in hindsight. Let's get back to the article. 
Powell acknowledged the increases will hurt U.S. households and businesses in perhaps an unspoken nod to the potential for a recession. But he also said the pain would be far greater if inflation were allowed to fester and that, quote, we must keep it at bay until the job is done, end quote. Quote, he focused more on the Fed's goals rather than the path, said Jeffrey Cleantop, chief global investment strategist at Charles Schwab. Quote, the left, that left the market with less to grab onto in terms of future path for policy, end quote. This next section is called the Jackson Hole speech. That's where this speech that Powell gave was. It was in Wyoming, Jackson Hole. Powell was speaking at an annual economic symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which has been the setting for the market-moving Fed speeches in the past. Quote, he basically said there will be pain and that they won't stop and can't stop hiking until inflation moves a lot lower. End quote, said Jake, Brian Jacobson, senior investment strategist at All Springs Global Investments. Quote, it was a merciful short speech to the point Powell didn't really have new ground to break, which is good since Jackson Hole isn't a policy manning, end quote. Expectations had built through the week that Powell would try to bat down recent talk about a pivot by the Fed. Such speculation had helped stocks surge through the summer. Some investors were even saying the Fed could cut interest rates later in 2023 as pressures on the economy mount and the nation's high inflation hopefully recedes. But Powell's speech made it clear the Fed will accept weaker growth for a while for the sake of getting inflation under control, analysts said. Quote, Powell reiterated, the Fed is worried about rising prices, and getting inflation under control is the number one job. End quote, said Jeff Klingenhofer co-head of investments at Thornburg Investment Management. Perhaps giving some hope to investors, some analysts said Powell seemed to indicate expectations for future inflations aren't taking off. If that were to happen, it could cause a self-perpetuating cycle that worsens inflation. A report on Friday said U.S. consumers are expecting 2.9% annual inflation over the long run, which is at the lower end of the 2.9 to 3.1 range seen in the University of Michigan survey over the last year. For now, the debate on Wall Street is whether the Fed will raise short-term rates by either half a percentage point, double the usual margin, or three-quarters of a point. The Fed's last two hikes have been by 0.75 points and a slight majority of bets on Wall Street are favoring a third such increase in September, according to CME Group. A report on Friday morning showed that the Fed preferred gauge, sorry, showed that the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation decelerated last month and wasn't as bad as many economists expected. It's a potentially encouraging signal which may embolden more of Wall Street to say that the worst of inflation has already passed, or will soon. Other data showed that incomes from Americans rose less last month than expected, 
while consumer spending grew slow, slowly. The Fed has already hiked its key overnight interest rate four times this year in hopes of slowing the worst inflation in decades. The hikes have already hurt the housing industry, and more expensive mortgage rates have slow activity. But the job market has remained strong, helping to prop up the economy. Investors got a fresh set of warnings from companies about the persistent impact from inflation and a slowing economy. Computer maker Dell slumped 12.7% after it said weaker demand will hurt revenue. Chip maker Marvel Technology fell 7.8% after giving investors a disappointing earnings forecast. So the news does not seem great overall. It's nice to see that they are still committed to trying to tackle the inflation problem. It is very hard-hitting, the policy or the way that they have to go about doing it by increasing interest rates so quickly. But in order to tamp down inflation and to make sure this is not a persistent problem, that's what we have to do. So if the stock market takes a little bit of a hit here in the next few months, you'll know why. Just keep a lookout for it. Don't be too sad. Trust me. I'd rather lose a little bit on my investment portfolio than have to deal with inflation for the next 10 years. All right, let's move to some international news. We have one here from the BBC. Russia blocks nuclear treaty agreement over Ukraine reference. Russia has blocked the adoption of a joint declaration by a United Nations conference on nuclear disarmament. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is reviewed by its 191 signatories every five years, aims to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons. Russia objected to the draft text citing, quote, grave concerns over military activities around Ukraine's nuclear plant, in particular, Zaporizhia. Participants at in the last review in 2015 also failed to reach an agreement. The 2022 meeting, which had been due in 2020, was delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The failure to agree to joint declaration followed a four-week conference in New York. Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong said she was, quote, deeply disappointed at the lack of agreement. Quote, Russia obstructed progress by refusing to compromise on proposed text accepted by all other states, she said. U.S. Representative Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins said the U.S., quote, deeply regrets this outcome, and even more so on Russia's actions that led us here today, end quote. Russia was opposed to a section of text expressing, quote, grave concern over military activities around Ukrainian power plants, including the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, which Russia seized earlier on in the war in Ukraine. The draft section also remarked on, quote, the loss of control of by the competent Ukrainian authorities over such locations as a result of those military activities and their profound negative impact on safety, end quote. Russia's representative Igor Vishkidny said the draft final text lacked, quote-unquote, balance. Quote, our delegation 
has one key objection on some paragraphs which are blatantly political in nature, he said, adding that other countries also disagreed with the text. The final document needed approval of all countries at the conference. A number of countries, including the Netherlands and China, expressed disappointment that no consensus had been reached. The Dutch said that they were, quote, content with useful discussions, but very disappointed that we have not reached consensus, end quote. China's ambassador, meanwhile, said despite the lack of agreement, the process was, quote, an important practice of common security in genuine multilateralism, end quote. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons regretted that, quote, in a year when a nuclear armed state invaded a non-nuclear armed state, a meeting of nearly all countries in the world failed to take action on nuclear disarmament, end quote. While the Washington-based Arms Control Association said the conference represented a missed opportunity to strengthen the treaty and global security, end quote. So let's pause here for a second. This is exactly what we should expect from Russia in this position. I don't think anyone is surprised. They don't want the criticism. They can't handle it at this point. And this is... Honestly, in my opinion, more retaliatory than anything. This is telling the world we will hold up something that is seen as vital, a vital agreement, and we will tout our military applications of nuclear weapons over you if you do not give us what we want, which is Ukraine. So this is just another piece on the chessboard that Putin is trying to utilize in order to keep the West and any other country that is allied with them at bay. The Non-Proliferation Treaty, backed by 190 countries in 1970, commits countries which signed up, including the U.S., Russia, France, the U.K., and China, to reducing their stockpiles and bars others from acquiring nuclear weapons. Last week, the Zaporizhia plant was temporarily disconnected from the power grid, raising fears of possible radiation disaster. Russia's military took control of the plant, the largest nuclear plant in Europe, and in early March. But it is still being operated by Ukrainian staff under difficult conditions. The UN's nuclear watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, is expected to organize a trip to Zaporizhia plant in the coming days to inspect facilities there. Last week, Russia said it would allow the IAEA inspectors to visit the plant. So at least they're playing ball a little bit. They're not trying to piss off everybody, but they are not moving on this one, and I don't see it happening anytime soon. Like I said, just another chess piece on the board. All right. Let's go to an interesting piece that I was reading uh, about Chick-fil-A. I know everybody has their own opinion about Chick-fil-A. It's not about their approach to anything. It's uh, their approach to anything in the social or political sphere. It's actually talking about how people with high emotional intelligence use the, quote, Chick-fil-A rule 
to make better decisions. All right, let's start. People with high emotional intelligence seem to make better decisions than almost everyone else. How do they do it? There's a simple answer, but explaining it requires us to take a 250-word narrative detour to prove the point. I hope you'll bear with me on this because it's very useful and because after many of years of both writing for Inc.com and educating myself about emotional intelligence, I've learned to take lessons where I find them. I found this one in an unlikely place by interviewing the people in charge of franchise selection at Chick-fil-A. Yes, Chick-fil-A, the fast food restaurant chain with delicious, delicious sandwiches, in my opinion, and, and a never open on Sunday policy. Their choice, and as it happens, one of the strangest problems in American business. Why do you want to own a Chick-fil-A? The problem. Every year, Chick-fil-A gets about 60,000 initial applications for franchises, but they only plan to open between 75 and 80 restaurants. This leaves them roughly a 0.13% acceptance rate. And trying to find needles in the haystacks and diamonds in the rough or whatever other cliches you like to use to paint the picture. To put, put things in context, by the numbers, it's harder to get a Chick-fil-A franchise than it is to get into Harvard University, which has a 3.2% acceptance rate, or to become a Navy SEAL, which has a 1.5% success rate. In fact, it's so absurdly selective, it's funny. <laughs> Level, uh, it's, it's funny level of competition that led me to study the company a few years back. The reason why so many people apply for Chick-fil-A franchises would take up a whole other article. And then he plugs his own article here. We can skip over that. The short version is that the franchise fee is very low and the annual income can be reportedly pretty high. Anyway, what people with high emotional intelligence take away from this culinary entrepreneurial diverse mm, diversion has to do with one of the questions Chick-fil-A uses to narrow down its enormous pool of applicants at every stage. As Maureen Donahue, Chick-fil-A's executive director of franchise selection, told me a few years ago, they asked this one over and over and over. Why do you want to own a Chick-fil-A franchise restaurant? See what I mean? Simple, but not necessarily easy. Quote, there are all kinds of layers that we can extract from that kind of question, end quote, Donahue told me. Quote, we're always curious what they come to the table with, but definitely how the response shifts and matures. It actually becomes more profound in some cases as they respond later in the selection process, end quote. Now, do people at Chick-fil-A ever mention the phrase emotional intelligence? I have no idea. But all due respect to everyone who runs a Chick-fil-A, a difficult job that I would most definitely be horrible at, I am sure I marvel at the fact that the most intense pepper peppering of why do you want to do this questions 
I've encountered in years of studying business, entrepreneurship, and emotional intelligence came in the context of selecting people to run fast food franchises. I guess if you want to solve a problem, sometimes it helps to study entities whose very survival depends on solving that problem. Anyway, since I found this technique by learning about Chick-fil-A, I call it the Chick-fil-A rule. And I think people with high emotional intelligence will recognize what it does. First, it identifies the vast majority of people whose motivations are unlikely to make them successful and who should probably no longer be considered. Second, it leaves a much smaller group, those who are motivated to apply because they possess a very unusual combination of attributes, skills, and interests that past experience suggests might actually make them successful. So, tell me, why don't people use this question strategy before making any big decision in life? Well, in fact, no matter what they call it, people with high emotional intelligence almost certainly do use a version of it. Truly, it applies everywhere. Career decisions, business choices, personal relationships... Imagine forcing yourself to answer this question over and over and over. Why do you want to do whatever it is that you're considering doing? Do you really and truly want to do it for good, sustainable reasons that likely position you for success? Or are you giving in to emotions, like for example, lethargy, choosing this path because it's easier than questioning your motivation? Are you possibly doing it because of guilt? Perhaps choosing this course of action because it lines up with other people's expectations of you? Are you doing it because of inertia? Perhaps you have so many sunk costs already that it would be hard to pivot. Or perhaps the biggest pitfall, I think, is it possible you are doing it out of fear? A fear of questions that you'd have to ask yourself if you decided not to. These are all good questions. In fairness, if I'd forced myself to answer them truthfully at earlier stages in my life, there are a few decisions I might have made differently. Remember, however, that at Chick-fil-A, as I understand it, it's really a three-part repeated process. One, they ask the person making the application to consider the question. Two, they force that him or her to articulate it repeatedly. Three, then they track the answers over time, looking for changes in growth. People with high emotional intelligence recognize that these would all be equally important parts of the process, and also that they could take many forms as adapt, adapted. Practically speaking, Maybe it means setting up conversations with a trusted confidant who will question you and help you pick apart your answers as you explore those big decisions. If that's not comfortable or practical, maybe it means answering the why question over and over by journaling and then looking back at how your earlier self answered. Maybe it also means asking other people who've made similar decisions, what motivated them, and examining whether your reasons for wanting to make sure choices are similar to theirs. Asking the why question is important. Asking it repeatedly is important. And studying the answers and playing devil's advocate is important as well. And 
especially important rule. Look, if a single person reads this article and thinks harder about whether to borrow money for graduate school or consider whether or not to pursue a career primarily because he, his or her parents or mentors expect it, or for that matter, really forces them to think hard about whether the relationship they're in is right for them, then I'll feel like I've done my job. Over the years, most of the emotional intelligent rules I've shared here on Inc. focus on the intersection between your emotions, other people's emotions, and the objective truth. Leveraging all of them to improve the odds, you'll achieve your goals. But this one is really more personal and perhaps more important. The Chick-fil-A rule is about guarding against your own emotions and defending against how you can lead you how they can lead you astray to make less than optimal decisions, often without realizing it until it's too late. So I think this is a great article. It gives a good insight into understanding yourself as well as how you can approach the hiring process in a business. And as a business major who's taking plenty of classes that have a heavy focus or at least discuss emotional intelligence as something that you need to do for other people, and you also need to be aware of yourself, this is nice to see another part of the discussion, which is this is how you keep yourself in check when your emotions are maybe running rampant or they're controlling your decisions. How can you best step back and say, is this necessary? Do I have to make this decision? And that could be very impactful for people that are going through hard times or are stuck in a, a negative loop, perhaps. Maybe you've got stuck in a really bad habit recently that is not good for you long term. If you're able to take a step back and ask why, why is it necessary that I do this? Why am I choosing to constantly do the same thing that leads to a result that is not making me happy, that is not allowing me to succeed? Those questions can be very impactful. And whether you act on them immediately or not, it doesn't matter. It's the fact that you're asking them and that you're aware. And I think it's great that this article highlights that. And it's something that a lot of people, probably including myself, could do a lot more often and it could lead to a lot better decisions for sure. All right. We have two more articles here. I have one talking about Missouri School District brings back the paddle to discipline students. This is an interesting one. A school district in southwestern Missouri is bringing back corporal punishment as a disciplinary measure in the form of spanking with a paddle. Cassville Public Schools announced the option for parents to opt in to having their children be punished by being swatted on the buttocks with a paddle, according to the reporting from the Kansas City Star. Under the new policy, students can be hit by a school administrator with a paddle to avoid suspension with the permission of a parent or guardian. The district's decision to allow the archaic form of punishment in schools has divided the community. 
I don't see this as an opinion piece. So there is strong use of the word archaic here. I understand everybody has their opinion, and I understand that it always leaches into their writing, but it's not very objective. Your bias is showing, basically, is what I'm saying. Mr. Chris Walker. Quote, I do not think it's appropriate. At the end of the day, they are having to hold children down and spank them or use whatever means that they can to make the children submissive when that is not the issue. It is the fact that they need to be heard because children act out for a variety of reasons, end quote, said Miranda Walthtrip, a parent of three children who attend the district. Superintendent Marilyn Johnson has claimed that most of the district's residents back the change, citing feedback he's personally received from community members in support of disciplinary measures. Quote, this is just another option that we can use before we get to the point of suspension, he said. There are a number of nonviolent alternatives to suspension that the district could have chosen to adopt, however. One effective, meaningful disciplinary measure is restorative chat, which helps students, quote, understand the harm done by their actions and allows them an opportunity to repair this harm, end quote in an empowering and non-humiliating way, according to a 2017 article from the National Association of Secondary School Principals. I think this is taking a pause from the article here. Restorative chat. I want you to define that more. I looked at the uh, article from National Association of Secondary School Principals, and while I don't think that their reasoning is not solid, or at least rational to some degree, I think restorative chat as a form of punishment does very little. Just because it's, oh, let's sit down. Why did you do what you do, do and you recognize it's wrong? Okay, good. Good little Timmy. Now you can go back and play again. There's no consequences to the action. Do I think that they should be spanking everybody? No. Do I think that it should be in every single classroom? There's a paddle sitting on the wall. I don't think kids necessarily need that threat hanging over them every second of the day. But there is something to having a physical consequence that they can link to their actions. If they step out of line and bully somebody... And there's evidence of it. It's not just, oh, you look fat in that dress kind of thing, but they actually harm somebody physically. Then if you were to hit them with the paddle and you tell them you are being spanked because you did that bullying activity, then it creates a mental association. It creates a stimu- uh, it creates a connection in their brain, a neural pathway, which is this terrible action leads to this terrible outcome, this pain that I'm feeling. Now, that's a theory I've had for a long time. Does it mean that does it mean that it's 100% backed up by science? No. It's just something that I think about when you think about how we train dogs. Shock collars. Bad behavior equals shock. Therefore, that behavior behavior is now associated with that negative stimuli. Then again, children aren't dogs. So, I could be talking out of my butt here. Just a different perspective to think about. Corporal punishment, significantly spanking, 
sorry, specifically spanking, has long been known to be ineffective means of disciplining children. In fact, such measures can actually increase the very behaviors that disciplinarians are trying to correct. Quote, many students have shown that physical punishment, including spanking, hitting, and other means of casual pain, can lead to increased aggression, antisocial behavior, physical injury, and mental health problems for children, end quote, wrote psychologist Brendan L. Smith in an article for the American Psychological Association's Monitor on Psychology in 2012. More recent studies have also found that corporal punishment can result in long-term negative effects for children that often last into adulthood. Quote, we know that spanking is not effective, and can be harmful for children's development and increases the chance of mental health issues, said George Cartius, who co-authored a Harvard study on the issue that was published in 2021. Quote, we also know it can have potential impact on brain development, changing biology, and leading to lasting consequences, end quote. A 2016 study published in the Society for Research and Child Development found that in states where corporal punishment is still used in schools, black children, boys, and children with disabilities were disproportionately targeted. So to break that down, disproportionately targeted, I mean, boys are more generally rambunctious and less likely to sit there and not talk back to a teacher or be less aggressive. So I think targeted is a very specific word that they use that I don't like. We would have to look at the statistics and see if boys are more likely to be aggressive, which I think as common knowledge we know, but in order to prove my point, we would have to talk about it in a statistical fashion to have it verifiable. Back to the article. The district's return to corporate punishment comes as right-wing lawmakers are launching a barrage of attacks on students' autonomy across the country, often under the banner of preserving parental rights. In recent months, far-right lawmakers have banned books from school libraries, specifically those that include black and LGBTQ perspectives, attempting to force teachers to, quote, out trans students to their parents and imposing Christianity upon students in public school settings, where religious actions are not supposed to be promoted by faculty, among other actions. So, nice little short article there. I think it talks about an issue that we've been talking about in America for a long time. I remember my first year at college, it was one of the first articles that we read in class and had a debate about because it's something that, though most studies, or at least the ones that I've been presented, have said that corporal punishment is not as effective as people think it is, it's still something that a lot of prospective parents, especially kids in my class, said that they would be willing to do on certain occasions. And a lot of the reasoning that they cited was, well, it was done to me, and I think it worked, so... So it's a long-standing issue in America, and I think it's interesting. I think we're probably never going to actually have one side win out. It's just never going to happen because we've been having this discussion for 30-plus years at, some, at this point. So let's move on to our last political article. 
from Fox News, California's crazy car ban forces drivers to go green and could drive rational people out of the state. Is that a weighted headline or what? Crazy car banned could drive rational people out of the state. Way to bury the lead there, Fox News. As California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom prepares for a run for president, he continues to varnish his far-left credentials. In his state's latest reality to be damned, Green New Deal endeavor, California regulators have banned gas-powered cars by 2035 in favor of electric cars. Never mind that just a couple of months ago, the Reuters headline blared, quote, California says it needs more power to keep the lights on, end quote. So they are very particular with the wording here. California regulators have banned gas-powered cars by 2035. They're banning the selling of them. If you have cars that are gas, you can still have them. They'll just be more heavily regulated and most likely taxed. They do say this later on in the article, but I always find it funny when they use very specific language because they know people won't read through the whole thing. They kind of front load it with their perspective and then kind of explain it afterwards. Like, oh, no, no, this is exactly what we meant. Or we were saying this the entire time. The golden state of yesteryear, California, has a few problems these days. Violent crime spree, number one in homelessness, number one in poverty, among worst in the nation in roads, home of supply chain crises, trillions of long-term debt, and a water delivery crisis, a disappearing middle class, business flight, and on and on. It also has a severe electrical crisis that has been exacerbated by its wildfire crisis. California is the only state in the nation that has a wildfire season that results in blackouts. For years, Californian officials have bowed to environmentalists to not clear brush in wooded areas and forests from overgrowth. When that overgrowth is near electrical lines, dying fire, deadly fires occur and California's power providers shut down power, sometimes days at a time. California's Public Utility Commission even has a name for this. It's aptly called de-energization. That de-energization policy is in response to wildfire deaths that saw the state's main energy company, PG&E, plead guilty last year to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter in a 2018 case. It was charged with manslaughter again in 2021 as a result of a deadly fire. The wildfire problem is anything but solved. It won't stop. Newsom's presidential green energy dreams. And does de-energization work with electric cars? Shh, shh. That's not the worst of it. Just so we're clear, that's Fox News saying that, trying to be funny, not me. California has an energy shortage, period, full stop. Just a couple of months ago, California's energy officials forecasted that the, quote, the state's electrical grid lacks sufficient capacity to keep the lights on this summer, and beyond if heat waves, wildfires, or other extreme events take their toll, end quote. Don't forget that in 2020, California had to get electricity from neighboring states and eight different utility companies just to keep the lights on. So this is, this is true. I think 
I kind of brush past the forest fire issue, but it's been a long-standing question of why are you not removing the dead brush from underneath the current forest? Because it just it's tender. If you've ever lit a fire, you know that you need tinder and small branches and small wood materials or different small pieces of paper in order to help the fire start going. So that theory applies here. Why are you not removing the tinder that is quite literally lying on the ground? It's going to exacerbate the problem. And though it's not that simple at the end of the day, it is one factor that is constantly contributing. And if they try to do something about it, maybe they could analyze the other factors and see how much is actually affecting these wildfires. And yes, California did have to buy electricity from its neighbors. And yes, their solar system is not quite robust, let's use that word, robust enough in order to handle their green future. Does that mean it's a bad thing? No, because if anything, this legislation may push them to actually have a fully renewable electric system, which is what they want by 2045. And honestly, I want it to happen. I want to see how sustainable it is. I want to see if they can get away with it. Because pushing towards renewable energies, though they are less efficient when it comes to raw power uh, compared to fossil fuels, I am most definitely encouraged by the creation of new technologies and the development of new technologies because just like when we went to the moon, we were developing all different types of new technologies and eventually it led to the computing boom that has led to smartphones, that has led to AI. So this kind of pressure they're putting on themselves could lead to different types of innovations in the renewable energy area, which could then lead to other innovations that we can use in our daily life. So if this is a small thing that helps push them towards their 2045 completely green goal, go for it. I don't live in California. It doesn't affect me. Does it mean it's smart? No. And if they come to Virginia and ask us to pay for their programs, I'm going to say no. But it's California. Let California do California. California's regulators have also projected the problem will get worse by 2025 and are about to stick customers with annual electricity rates increasing between 4 to 9% from now to 2025. Keep in mind, the Democrats have been actively making the problem worse. For years, green-minded Democrats have wanted to shut down the state's last remaining nuclear power plant Faced with the current power shortage, however, and against the wish of California's green movement, Newsom has extended the life of the power plant for another five years. There is also the very serious problem uh, with the fact that California's existing power grid is so outdated that it isn't ready to take on the level of electrification, that's in quotes, their green new policies require. The grid cannot handle the solar mandates California has imposed. All of which brings us to California's regulatory requirement that new cars sold in California must be electric or plug-in hybrids by 2035. There we go. See how they brought it back up that it has to be sold. It's not an outright ban where all the cars that are gas are just gone. 
It took them a while to get here, but they finally did. That is part of California's greater plan, worked out under Newsom's blessing, that the state's electricity system must be carbon-free by 2045. You might be asking yourself right now, how can a state that cannot reliably deliver electricity to its citizens and businesses simultaneously require the use of massive amounts of more electricity? Please, stop being logical. Plainly stated, California's policies, include, including may be driven by uh, Newsom, do not make practical sense. That is why so many of its citizens are leaving the state for, well, yes, greener pastures. The greener pastures of a job. The problem is so bad that California is now shrinking on the population in population for the first time in its history. So many have left that California even lost a vote in the Electoral College. Now, by requiring its residents to buy more electric cars in the years to come, hitting them with the highest income taxes in the country and all its other problems, California's green energy car ban will drive even more Californians out of the state. If you don't think that matters to you, don't forget, as I write recently, Newsom wants to be your president. So if you think that things are bad under Joe Biden, think about how bad it will be under Newsom. He does make a good point there. I'm honestly not afraid of Newsom becoming president. I don't even think he'll become the Democratic nominee. So I'm not worried about it whatsoever. I do think there's an interesting point here at the end, which is Californians leaving California. I hope when people leave their state, if they do not like the policies, if they are leaving because of those policies, then I hope they, when they go to these other states, they do not bring the same mindset along with them, which is, oh, I voted Democrat in the past. Oh, let me just vote Democrat again when I get here. They need to look at this on an issue-by-issue basis. If the governor is a Democrat and he is not proposing the same things as Newsom, and you agree with him, great. There you go. But you cannot blindly just vote Democrat, or you cannot just blindly vote for one party or another, because eventually, even if it doesn't happen now, there will be people that are a little bit more progressive. There may be other candidates that you don't fully understand their policies that may bring in the exact same policies you left California for. So keep that in mind if you're moving from state to state. And I hope it doesn't happen to Virginia, which is a, a state that's purple right now and is close to D.C. So it could very well pull in lots of people who may be think that, oh, it's not necessarily a red state. It's not necessarily a blue state. They have the right to work. It's close to D.C., lots of high-paying job opportunities. So as long as they come here and they vote with their heart and they don't bring the terrible policies along with them, come on in. Otherwise, stay out of Virginia. All right. I have The Daily Delight, which is a story about some dogs going down a slide. Also... Um, in this daily magazine, I have a satire piece, like with the last video, in the last podcast episode. It will all be linked below. The link to the magazine will be there. It's publicly available, and you can look at that satire piece. It's it's actually really funny, but it's kind of hard to read out loud without sounding really really uh, stupid. 
So the last story for today, our daily delight. Dogs have a blast going down their own twisty outdoor slide. Going to the park can be a lot of fun, and one of the best parts of is finding a twisty outdoor slide to go down. Who says dogs can't have fun too? It's not just children who love twisty outdoor slides, though. Dogs do too. At least some dogs do. Take the pups that live in Zhaozhou, for example. In a video posted on Zhaozhou's YouTube channel, you can see his pack of puppies sliding down the very, their very own slide and loving every minute of it. The first dog to go down is a large breed pup that slides down backwards. That dog is followed by a smaller breed pooch who went down face first. Several more dogs follow, and they kind of make it hard to count. Our estimate is 7 to 10. The dogs seem to love the slide and all the twists and turns it has to offer. In the end, their human, Zhao Zhu, tumbles down the slide and joins his pups at the bottom. The slide is actually part of an incredible kennel that Zhao Zhu custom-built for his pets. They're some lucky animals, to say the least. Don't worry, though. The cats weren't left out of the fun either. The kennel was designed with a special observation area for the felines so they can look down over the world. So if you want to see the videos of them sliding down or the uh, little outlook they have, you can just look up Dogs Have a Blast going down their twisty outdoor slide or link in the description will take you to all these articles for today. I hope that last story left you feeling positive. Thanks for joining me on the Daily Flip podcast. Only one more thing to say. Stay safe and don't die.